This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. It's possible to stop or delay the expression of the illness in a substantial proportion of people. Hello again. On this episode of the Live Long and Master Aging podcast, Preventing Alzheimer's Disease. I'm Peter Bowes, and this is the podcast where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today, I'm returning once again to the topic of Alzheimer's, one of the great health scourges of modern time. It affects 47 million people around the world, the sixth leading cause of death here in the United States. And while the disease itself is becoming better understood, there is still no cure. Well, I'm at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, where researchers are investigating a vaccine and oral medication that could, they say, stop Alzheimer's developing years before it begins. I've come to see Dr. Lon Schneider, Professor of Psychiatry, Neurology and Gerontology and Director of the California Alzheimer's Disease Center. Dr. Schneider, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is a study that, as I say, is focused on prevention rather than a cure. Correct. Where we've moved in uh, investigating therapies for uh, Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's-related dementias is towards intervening earlier and earlier. We generally feel that for an effective treatment that would have considerable effects in society, uh, we'd like to treat earlier at at the very first signs or we'd like to see if we can prevent or delay the expression of, uh, of symptoms of Alzheimer's disease in people who don't yet have it but who have a high risk for developing it. And we've uh, talked about this before, Dr. Duke Han, also from this uh, research institution a few weeks ago, talking about the fact that Alzheimer's can be developing within us way before we see any noticeable or outward signs. Well, yeah. So as with many, if not all, chronic illnesses and chronic complex illnesses, the evolution often can be measured in years, uh, that it's in a sense developmental with changes, maybe age-related changes, maybe disease-related changes occurring long before symptoms develop. So before we get into the detail of of what you're working on right now, maybe just talk a little bit about you and and your journey as as far as your career is concerned and, and your interest in this subject, uh, how you got here. That's always hard to describe uh, in retrospect, but I've been working within uh, geriatrics and within geriatric uh, psychiatry and neurology since the beginning of my career. A substantial proportion of, of people who have difficulties have difficulties in late middle life and uh, late life. So uh, my work ha- has been focused on treating, uh, investigating, treating, and studying people who develop depression, uh, Alzheimer's disease, regular cognitive, regular age-related cognitive impairment. It is, to a certain extent, downhill from 
30 or so, and there is an age-related component to it, and then studying and uh, developing treatments for older people who, as a result of cognitive impairment or dementia, also develop behavioral problems, uh, partly due to the difficulty in managing with memory problems. So it has been a a long-term interest of yours. Where did you go to school, by the way? Where did you train to become a a doctor? Well, my my residency uh, was here at at USC. For whatever reasons, I've tended to stay here and uh, in Los Angeles, uh, except for a couple of stints at at NIH. Tell me what the main challenges are when you're thinking about a a study like this to Mm -hmm. look at finding a new medication or, or indeed a, an effective medication to treat something like Alzheimer's. And what are the challenges that you face? Well, the specific challenges with respect to developing a preventive therapy are involved with being able to predict who will develop dementia or who will develop Alzheimer's disease-related pathology, Alzheimer's pathology, and then go on to develop cognitive impairment. Most of us don't. So for a preventive therapy, we want to be able to find those people who are at risk. Otherwise, we would be, in effect, treating the entire uh, population. So that is a major challenge. We know some risk factors, and we surely know midlife risk factors that if we diminish them would delay the onset of cognitive impairment. However, choosing patients for a study, prevention study, can be a challenge. And a lot of research is done on medications with patients that have advanced Alzheimer's. Essentially, patients that there is probably little that can be done, certainly in terms of reversing the condition. But you want to find those people in the very, very early stages, or or indeed the stages where there are no symptoms at all. Well, Yes, we do want to find people in the very early stages, the stages in which people have no symptoms. I I will quibble with you a a bit. I think there's there's a substantial amount that we can do with people who already have symptoms and already have dementia. Unfortunately, we've tended to focus on drug treatments to reverse the cognitive impairment or drug treatments that we hope might stabilize people who already have severe cognitive impairment. And that may not be effective. However, interventions to improve function, to improve behavior, to allow people to cope who already have dementia are quite effective. And uh, we actually lament the fact that these interventions are not being uh, done at least uh, within the United States. So these are interventions, these are medications to essentially improve the quality of life, the day-to-day quality of life of someone with advanced Alzheimer's. Well, medications and also environmental interventions to uh, improve quality of life and social s- service interventions, as well as psychotherapeutic and cognitive therapy is interventions. It, is it possible, and clearly yeah. you're entering into this study and, and, and looking forward, but I wonder, is it in your mind that if you can intervene early enough, is it possible to stop Alzheimer's developing? Well, it's possible to stop or delay the expression of the illness in a substantial proportion of people. And we know this or model this from 
both our observations and also our knowledge of risk factors. For example, even though the numbers, the absolute numbers of people who will develop dementia and who do develop dementia over time has increased. The absolute number has increased along with the increase in uh, the population. However, in Western countries, the age-specific incidence of Alzheimer's disease has actually decreased and has decreased substantially over the past 40 or 50 years by a major amount, by a few percentage points per decade. So the incidence of the, the percentage of people developing dementia over time is decreasing. The absolute numbers are increasing. So why might this be happening? And what you see in such a short time is that it can't be just genetics. In fact, it's unlikely to be genetics, but it's the environment. It's changes in uh, standards of living, in food, in what we do, in activity, in education. And that correlates well with what we know about uh, risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, such as Believe it or not, early childhood education or the lack of, of education is a risk factor that accounts for several percentage points of the people who have Alzheimer's disease. How, Me- how, how could that be? Oh, At such so, an early age, how can the way that you uh, are educated or, or indeed yeah. not educated, how can that affect you? So first, in science, we never really know. However... What we think and what the evidence says is that during that time, there's a tremendous amount of brain maturation and development. There is the development of synapses, of neurons. There is learning taking place at a huge rate. And what we think is that this, this developmental period before age 15 creates enough redundancy and enough increases in brain connectivity that overall, in general, we're more resistant to any uh, neurodegenerative effects that are occurring in midlife and later on. So in a sense, it's starting off with a fuller deck of cards, uh, as it were, and that that resistance uh, matters. And what we're talking about is delaying onset of dementia from an average age in around 80 to a few years. Or if you are destined to develop it at age 70, uh, maybe 75. The term for this is called cognitive reserve. It should probably be called neuronal reserve, but that's one explanation for this. Related to that is that the people who would be more likely to be better educated, better schooled, are also probably better socioeconomically and uh, nutritionally and in- environmentally. Uh, is, there, is there strong data on socioeconomic environments as they apply to people with Alzheimer's? Depends what you mean by strong. But uh, yes, there's consistent data, as there is for most other complex diseases, that uh, wealth and social status is somewhat protective of 
all chronic diseases or most chronic diseases. So, so, that, so that's one of the environmental yeah. factors that you, you started right. talking about and you, you mentioned food and other conditions that we are exposed to. It could be the air that we breathe. It could be, as you say, your right. education. And I think obviously food is key, at least one right. of the key aspects and, and exercise as well. Right. And it's the timing as well. Uh, for instance, we've long known that hypertension and the sequela of hypertension are associated with cognitive impairment. Sometimes we overspecify and we say, oh, it's with vascular cognitive impairment. But no, it's with cognitive impairment that includes Alzheimer's disease. But the hypertension that's associated with this, that's a risk factor, is hypertension in midlife, not the systolic hypertension of old age. Or, for example, diabetes is a risk factor. People who have type 2 diabetes are more likely to develop uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease. But the risk seems especially related to people in their 60s or 50s. And so the age specificity of this physical inactivity is more related as a risk factor is more related to people in late middle life than early middle life. So this comes together. And so what we've seen over over the years and what many of us have observed and, and written about is that if you could control these several risk factors, and another I didn't mention is a major depression in midlife as well. And obesity in midlife, not in later life, but in midlife, is a risk. If you could control these risk factors, you could probably further decrease the incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's disease by about 35%. Now, these are huge effects. And I was going to say, that's a huge number. These are huge effects. Even the several percentage point decrease by decade that we've been observing over the past 40 or 50 uh, years, if that were due to a drug, if we had a drug that caused that effect, that we treated people who did not have Alzheimer's disease and treated them for a decade, and we got this 2% difference, we would be saying we've got a near cure. So the environmental risk factors, let alone the genetic risk factors, but the environmental risk factors are particularly important in modulating this and delaying onset. So it's on top of this, then, that we're looking for pharmacologic uh, intervention. Mm, interesting. And just, I, I want to talk about that in detail. Yeah. But when you talk about midlife, can you, can you put barriers on that? Are you talking roughly 40 to 60? How would you define midlife, those apparently crucial years? I'd say roughly, um, roughly 40 to 60, uh, 60 years of age. That's and when then, lifestyle decisions can, can really affect us in, in later life. Right. And so especially manifestations of hypertension or obesity. Hearing loss, low hearing, is another uh, risk factor that contributes several percentage points to the risk. That is hearing loss in midlife, not the late-life-associated uh, hearing loss, for which people typically are, are given uh, hearing aids. So uh, again, it suggests the life course-specific interventions that might be made. And then that also is under, uh, can be uh, either understood or explained by 
if you're having difficulty hearing and it's not corrected in midlife, that is years of being in a sense left out, of not being able to fully participate, of not being able to fully take in the information that we, that we all need to then further adapt and, and adjust. So that brings it around to, yes, there are changes occurring, not only changes occurring environmentally, risks that manifest themselves in, in midlife, and there are biological or pathological changes can be observed many years before. Hmm. So let's talk about the study that you're embarking on. You're sure. looking for people to take part in this. Correct. Uh, adults between the ages of 60 and 75. About that, how will, correct. How will you select that group? So the, the study we're doing along with a lot of centers uh, that's being led by the Arizona, by, excuse me, by the Alzheimer's Prevention Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, which is part of Banner uh, Health. And this is partly NIH funded and then also with, uh, with assistance from, a little assistance from Banner and from Novartis uh, Pharmaceuticals. This study is a vaccine that is intended to reduce the amount of amyloid in the brain. Amyloid is, uh, is a pathologic protein when it's in the brain and when it has either fibrils or small pieces called monomers or uh, oligomers. And the vaccine is designed to bind to the fibrils and remove them from brain. We are hoping that since the amyloid is one of those earlier features of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease occurring way before their symptoms, that by removing amyloid when, when somebody has few symptoms, that we might delay, the, uh, delay any onset of cognitive impairment or maybe uh, prevent it entirely. So there will be some genetic testing required of the volunteers in the study initially to see if they are appropriate for this. Right, and to help make... So one consideration with a vaccine or with any preventive measure is, in principle, you need to give it to everybody because nearly everybody's at risk, and uh, you're giving it to everybody to hope and to decrease the numbers of cases. So that's not practical or doable in the least in, in treating or trying to prevent Alzheimer's disease. So and other options are to find a population, a group of people who may be at particular risk so that um, we're able to observe the effect of a vaccine at delaying onset more easily. So that population we're choosing based on a genetic risk, and that is the the APOE4 uh, genotype, which is uh, so we have a, a, a gene that produces a, a protein, apolipoprotein, and that apolipoprotein comes in three varieties: two, three, and four. Uh, those are alleles. Those are what you inherit. We may inherit one, two, one, three, two, threes, one from each parent, one, three, and one, four. Overwhelmingly, some 70% of the population tends to carry a three allele and a three, one copy, an APOE3 from one parent, an APOE3 from the other. 25% uh, of the population carries 
an ApoE4 allele, and they tend to have 1,3 and 1,4. And some of us carry a 4 from one parent and a 4 from the other. So 25% of the population has uh, carries an ApoE4 allele. That is of itself a statistical risk for Alzheimer's disease, a modest risk, but, but a risk. Carrying a four allele, two four alleles, though, which two or three percent of the population does, increases that risk considerably. You're still not likely to get Alzheimer's disease. It's just increasing your but chance. But it increases your chances compared to the 75% of us who carry the three alleles or the ApoE three allele or the ApoE two allele. And so we would like – and the uh, what we know about the APOE4 alleles and people who carry two copies is that their age of onset is also a bit earlier uh, than others, around age 69 or 70. So by choosing patients, by finding yeah, – excuse me, I really shouldn't yeah, – these are participants. These are volunteers. They're not people who are ill. And but they're, actually, asking, they're not showing any symptoms. And they're not showing any symptoms that uh, otherwise couldn't be associated with age-related cognitive impairment or cognitive aging, which is, is itself another which affects subject. Which affects all of us. It inevitably will affect all of us, that there'll be some loss of cognitive ability just as we get older. It doesn't mean to say that we have dementia or Alzheimer's. Right, which affects all of us and affects all of us variably or each of us variably, such that it starts to merge with uh, dementia and with Alzheimer's disease. And there's a greater relationship between normal cognitive aging and some of the diseases, some of the dementia diseases than we um, often give credit to. So that, that interaction itself is important. And to consider. But back to the study. Yes, so, uh, so once you have right. your group, presumably you will split them into control groups and a group right. to receive medication? Right. So it's not such an easy task to identify people who have no particular symptoms or may be worried, but who carry an APOE4, two copies of an APOE4 allele. It's about 3% of, uh, of the population. So, yes, so that is a group we're asking to volunteer for the. Uh, for the A-beta vaccine, which is also called CAD-106, a good code name, as good as any other. And then once we have or as we have people for that, we would be randomizing them, treating them with um, either vaccine or placebo. They would get several doses. So this is not quite like a flu shot where you get one dose for the season. You get several doses um, and they over won't the course know, of several months. They won't know which group they're in. And, they, and you won't know what, uh, what group you're in. And uh, we're asking uh, you to be available to be followed up for several years, for five years or so. We also have a provision for people who would like to volunteer but who may not want to know what their APOE genotype is. And that is that we can evaluate them and take their genotypes confidentially and still bring them into the study because there is a provision for people for controls 
who don't carry an APOE4 gene, and there's a provision for another related study in which you can carry one APOE uh, APOE4 gene. So in that related study, they make they will get a pill and, as the British say, a jab, <laughs> yes. but a vaccine. And uh, I had not mentioned that people are are receiving pills anyway, along with that vaccine that that, that may be placebo. So this is so, this is quite yeah. a, a complicated, obviously a very precise selection process mm-hmm. that you will have to go through. Right. And and clearly human emotions come into this as well. For people Absolutely. stepping forward to take part in a, a study like this, there might be people who want to know everything about their genotype and, and want to have right. some sense of perhaps their risk of developing a condition like this. Mm-hmm. And and then they perhaps they want to be in the group that receives the medication because they think, well, why not? It, it might actually help me. So th- those are the emotions that you can't really factor into the, the very clinical nature of the study, I guess. Well, we can't, we can't factor it into the effect of the, right. of the drug. That, that is uh, randomized and controlled. But we do take this into account in terms of people who volunteer. As you said, many people will volunteer because they're, they have a parent with dementia and they're concerned about themselves and um, and their risks. Uh, others will volunteer because, hey, why not? It's a, it, it's a thing to do. People can learn. We're only dealing with this one gene, uh, APOE4, and the different types, different variations, because it's convenient and because it is a risk factor that can account for a certain proportion of the people with Alzheimer's disease statistically. That's why we're using it. But people can find out about their genotype uh, through, um, for instance, 23andMe. Exactly. A lot of us do and it. And that's uh, – yeah. uh, this is a particular gene that's uh, that's available that way. So, so some will, or out of know. curiosity, will – find out that way and um, wish to come in. We do, uh, we do speak with people who do learn what their genotypes are, and we do have uh, uh, genetic counseling available as well. So you say, and, and obviously mm. and inevitably, this is going to be a long-term study. It, by the mm. very nature of what you're looking at, people need to come back to you year after year. Right. I guess some people may well die during the course, maybe of, of other mm. things, uh, during the course of the study. What, from a practical sense, will they need to do? How frequently? I, I assume this is cognitive testing mm-hmm. that they'll have to take part in. Right. So we'd want to see them every few months initially, and, and, and initially they need to get a, um, a vaccine about every month for about six months, then we'd want to see them uh, every several months, uh, three, four times uh, a year over the course of, uh, of the study. And we would be testing with, um, with neuropsychological tests, with so-called paper and pencil tests, asking and uh, assessing a person's ability to learn a list of words, to recognize things, to to do some speed-related uh, concentration tasks. And That's how we measure early symptoms, uh, early signs and, uh, and effects. And in terms of any potential risk factor, I'm sure that's a question you get from people, mm-hmm. that those that actually receive the, the medications that you are testing on right. them. Is it putting them to any danger, potentially? So every study has a potential for risk and adversity um, all the way down the line. Here, for the vaccine part of it, 
the risks so far in the relatively few participants have been really slight and involve mostly reactions around the uh, the injection sites, so swelling or or redness. There is a potential that there could be some fluid shifts in the brain uh, in people with Alzheimer's disease. A vaccine about 15 years ago that, that was used tended to affect the amyloid that was in the brain of um, brains of people with Alzheimer's disease and remove some of that amyloid from the small capillaries around um, that feed the brain, and it caused a bit of edema. So far, we have not seen that with this newer vaccine and in people who have much less amyloid. Will it be? Is the study going to be based here in in Los Angeles? Are you looking for people local to this area? Well, we are because we're based here in in Los Angeles. But there's study sites throughout the United States and uh, and and elsewhere. And what's the time scale to get this? If there's anyone listening to this, thinks that they could be interested and would like to get involved, what should they do? Who who should they they get in touch with? They should come on down, and uh, they they should uh, they should call us or email us. You can. Get onto uh, the website, the uh, ADRC USC website, Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, usc.edu website. You could easily just type that into Google without an actual address. And you'll see on the first page for the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center a few studies um, that are listed and, uh, and named. One of them is called GENERATION in capitals which is the name of the study. And you could see a brief description and see who to contact. Uh, If anybody is taking notes, I could tell you to contact Nadine Diaz, uh, one of our social workers, who would be delighted to talk with you uh, about this. Well, I will put those details on the show notes page at llamapodcast.com, our website. All those details will be there. The URL will be there. So that should be quite easy. I'll also tweet them and put them into social media from our Facebook page, our Twitter site. So it should be quite easy through this to to actually get to you. I'm curious, I know we just have a few minutes left, but um, you've displayed your passion for this subject, and it's Mm -hmm. it's been a a lifelong career Mm -hmm. as far as you're concerned. What drives you every day? I described this at the very beginning as one of the great scourges of of modern time in Mm -hmm. in terms of diseases. I think the very, very few of us that don't know someone who has been afflicted by this condition. What drives you as a scientist to move forward every day with this kind of work? Because, uh, well, first I'm a physician, and so uh, I came into this trying to help people and have long focused on, as we discussed before, cognitive aging and interventions. But but next, as a scientist, this is a tremendously complex illness and challenge. Even though we've spoken about an amyloid vaccine that might remove amyloid and delay the onset of cognitive impairment, it's far more complicated than that. And it's important to look and evaluate the various interventions that can be done. And before that, try to work and understand how this manifests itself and and the, uh, the range of cognitive impairment that occurs throughout life. 
Well, it's extremely valuable work. I wish you all the best with this study in particular yeah. and the rest of your work as well. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Well, that was a pleasure uh, being here and um, speaking with you. Thanks so much. And as I just said, if anyone is interested listening to this, would like to get involved, go to our website, llamapodcast.com, and I'll uh, put all the details in there. Just before we go, a reminder that there are lots of ways to listen to us. You can get in touch as well through the website. You can also listen at Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play Music, and of course, iTunes. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.